119, verse 41. We'll continue our study of uh, Psalm 119. It's separated in 22 different stanzas, all beginning with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We come to the letter Vaw, and some Hebrew scholars would protest and say it's Wa. So I'll leave that to you, uh, however you want to say that. It has no consequence on our interpretation of the psalm, but some of your Bibles may say va, that's a Hebrew letter, some may say wa. Mine says va, but I'm not going to say it anymore the rest of this uh, sermon. So Psalm 119 verse 41, let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even your salvation according to thy word. Now we're going to title this message, The Word of God Brings Mercies. As I said before, we're trying to capture one thought out of the beginning of each stanza and focus our attention as we think and hope that the psalmist is doing in each stanza, although he is repeating again and again many phrases that we've seen and will continue to see. Mercies. The word mercies is from a Hebrew word, keset. It's a wonderful, marvelous, beautiful word in the Bible as it relates to God. It can be used man-to-man in Genesis 20. Uh, It's spoken of the kindness of one person to another. That's the same Hebrew word. It's spoken in Psalm 145 as God's kindness, His goodness to all creation. But it is most often used of God's unfailing, steadfast, covenant-keeping mercies to those who are His own, as it is used here in Psalm 119, verse 41. Let your mercies come to me, enter to be brought unto me. Now the context we see in verse 42, the psalmist is dealing with reproach, so shall I have her with to answer him that reproacheth me, And again in verse 46, I will speak thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. So he's struggling with the distress of being reproached, taunted, reviled, ridiculed, mocked, scoffed at, laughed at. Some of the things we fear, isn't it? We are at times afraid of being mocked, ridiculed treated with scorn, taunted. And then he says he would not be ashamed, which means he's struggling somewhat with shame. That, that painful feeling that you have, it can be conscious of wrong you've done, but that's not the shame here. It's a consciousness of what others think about you. It's the fear of being rejected, inadequacies, or being disapproved of. And so the psalmist needs the mercies, the the steadfast, unfailing love and mercy of God to come unto him, to help him in such a way that he fights against the reproach that he is experiencing and the potential shame that he could experience that is often associated with reproach. Because that's when people's eyes are towards you in a way that is defaming and vilifying and painful. Painful. So as we look at this psalm, there are many different ways the psalmist will help us 
see God's mercies in such a way that will help us with such distresses and more, we'll look at four this morning. Four. So the first one we find in verse 42, he says, So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. So he's asking for the mercies of God to come, even God's salvation. And when it comes, he says, I'll have an answer. So mercy helps us to have an answer for those that would reproach us. Now, what is your answer? Well, there's a couple of different enemies we can consider in the Bible, which both we need to have an answer for the reproach. The first enemy is the enemy called the devil. The devil loves to reproach. He's an accuser of the brethren. He wants to reproach you, revile you, rail at you, vilify you, and make you feel there's no way you could be in the love of God. I mean, look at yourself. Look at your sin. Look at your guilt. And when he accuses, he's accurate. He doesn't have to make up stuff on you. He doesn't have to slander you and and try to lie about you. You have enough guilt already in your life to, to burst wide open the gates of hell. So what is the answer when the devil reviles you? Well, we heard it in Isaiah 54, verse 16 and 17. 17 in particular. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. I think Isaiah uses the word kesed there. God's mercy upon you means what? No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue, that's the organ of speech that rises against you in judgment to accuse you of guilt You shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now, the first qualification is you've got to be a servant of the Lord to experience this answer against the tongue that reviles you. Are you a servant of the Lord? You must be a servant of the Lord. This is the heritage, this is the inheritance of those who serve Christ, not those who do not serve Him. So what is Isaiah saying? What is God saying through the pen of Isaiah? Well, first, uh, we know a weapon that is formed can prosper. It can harm us. It can do us in. So the way the Lord prevents the enemy of the church called the devil and the enemies of the world in their weapons against us not to prosper, either He takes the weapon out of their hand, it would be a sword in that day, Or He transforms the sword into a trowel and builds up the kingdom of God by means of the devil, of the world, or anything else. Because He created the smith that bloweth the coals that brings forth the instrument called a sword. Verse 16. And He creates the waster that does the destroying. Therefore, There is no possible way any weapon formed against you can actually, effectually prosper because God is going to use it to advance and prosper His own kingdom for your good. Now that's the first promise and that's an answer to the devil. But what about the answer of guilt that we surely have? You can't answer the devil by saying, you're mistaken about me, I've never broken the law. No, his accusations are accurate. Now here's the inheritance of the servants of the Lord. When a tongue, the tongue of the devil, his speech rises up against you and accuses you of guilt, how will you turn and 
condemn him. God says, your justification is from me, saith the Lord. That's what the word righteousness means in that text. So you can say, yes, I have sinned, devil, what of it? Christ has made satisfaction on my behalf, and I stand right in the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Who is he that condemneth? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that will bring a charge to the to the God's elect? See, to condemn means to charge you. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, just about anybody can. Can they not? But it won't stick. Why? It is God that justifies the elect. And who are the elect in Romans? It is, it is God that justifies and is just in justifying the believer. See? Those two are synonymous in the book of Romans. So the reason the enemy called the devil cannot reproach you for your sin, oh, he can, but his charges won't stick because God has stuck them, he's imputed them, he's charged them to the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. And if you are a servant of Jesus Christ, you have the deep assurance of knowing that your sin is charged to you no more, no more. Now how do we know that in particular? Well, Micah 7, 8, when Micah is speaking on behalf of Israel, using the personal pronoun concerning himself, representing Israel, he would say, Rejoice not against me, O my enemies. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. And then he says this, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, for I have sinned against Him. See, the only way you know the accusations of the devil won't stick is you've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and the fruit of that justification is you've confessed and you've agreed with God concerning your sin. What does Micah say on behalf of Israel? I have sinned against Him. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. How can He possibly bear God's indignation? Because you remember in Micah 7.18, the same context... Micah cries out, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? There's that word inheritance again. The word pardon and the word bear in Micah 7, 8 and 7, 18 are the same Hebrew word. He will bear the displeasure of the Lord only because Jesus bore the displeasure of God, the indignation of God in the cross. And so when we confess and acknowledge our sins, we're going back to the cross, back to the source of forgiveness and confessing our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're experiencing forgiveness from our Father and assurance that whatever the devil may say, whatever he may bring up against you, which will be true and accurate, you have a Savior who satisfied God's justice. He bore the indignation of God on your behalf. And therefore, that is our answer to the devil or anyone else when we acknowledge sin and confess and rest in the blood of Jesus Christ. But what about the enemy called the world? I think this is more of what 
the psalmist has in mind. He says, when God's mercies come, even His salvation, the upshot will be, I will have wherewith, I will have an answer to anyone who is reproaching me. Because I trust in the Word. See, the mercies of God are coming by means of the Word, according to the Word. And so as we trust in God's mercies by the Word, we have an answer for those that would reproach us. Now, what is your answer for reproach? There's one sense, you don't need mercy at all to answer reproach, right? There's a default mode that you have that you don't need the Holy Spirit. You don't need mercy. What do you do when someone reproaches you? You give it right back to them. When you're insulted, you insult back. When someone harms you, you harm them back. Maybe even you harm them more. When someone criticizes you, you criticize back. You return evil for evil. We can do that without mercy. But when mercy comes, even the salvation of God, what is it that's going to honor that mercy? It's something that we cannot do without mercy, can we? It's what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 5.44 when He said, I say unto you, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those that curse you, pray for those which despitefully use you and abuse you. Despitefully use, revile, reproach, ridicule you. You see, if the psalmist is going to answer like that, he needs the mercy of God. Don't return evil for evil, nor railing for railing, contrarywise. Bless that person. Now, if the truth be known, we probably are more successful at speaking words of blessing to enemies we don't know, then we are most often to the people closest to us that we're supposed to love, like your wife, or your husband, or your children, or your parents. Those people that are closest to us most often get the reproaches and the insults and the words that so easily flow off of our lips when we are insulted. So when we ask God to give us mercy, let your mercies come, even your salvation, part of the problem is we have, we have confined salvation to a past tense event or a, a singular event when you're converted and come to faith in Christ. But this is a broad word. It's like a canopy word where every facet of salvation comes under it. There is nothing that has to do with salvation in Jesus Christ that doesn't come under this word. So you have election and predestination and adoption and justification and reconciliation and effectual call, regeneration and preservation and perseverance and glorification and there's many other words. All of them are under this canopy word called salvation. But the psalmist is trusting in God, so what he's asking for is the salvation called deliverance, rescue, and help. Lord, I need your mercy to come so I can answer the right way to people that reproach me. Now what is the psalmist then asking deliverance from? Not from the enemy. 
from himself. It's out of his own heart that the wrong response comes. It's out of his own heart that he feels the struggle to say something that would be an answer that's not coming from mercy, not magnifying mercy, but it's coming from the default mode called the remaining corruptions of the old man that resides in us. See, your biggest problem, my biggest problem, which needs to be said over and over again, is not your wife, it's not your enemy, it's not your husband, it's not your parents, it's not your church, it's not your children, it's you. And until we get that, there'll be no peace in your relationships. Because you're always going to throw it back toward the person in the relationship. It's the enemy. That's why I spoke the way I did, because they reproached me. And the psalmist knows... If he but has the mercies of God coming in a daily practical way, that mercy, that salvation, that rescuing grace is going to rescue him from himself. And then he says, I will have wherewith to answer him that reproaches me. Because I trust in your word. See, when we're trusting in the Word, we're going to the Word to find the rescuing grace, the helping grace, the the delivering grace we need for ourselves and having the right answer. Beloved, mercy and grace is not an energy drink you do in the morning. You just drink that drink, you go, and you can make it through the day. It's a person. When God brings His mercies to you, His loving kindness, He's bringing Himself. He is going to be the rescuing person that's going to deliver rescue and help us have an answer when we're reproached. We've been united to Christ by faith. He is the one who is our helper, our our strength, our rescuer, our deliverer. And so when we're, we're trusting in the Word, we're trusting in God, and God is bringing the mercies that are found in Christ alone, even His salvation And that salvation, that deliverance is going to come in the form of a person named Jesus Christ. And so we need to see Christ in the Word. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. What's what's the, the, uh, the effect of that? The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So the life that Paul is living... A life where he was speaking before kings and he was not ashamed. A life where he was reproached and afflicted and persecuted by the people that loved him most or that he loved most. And yet, being a sinner and knowing at times he spoke wrongly, we see him speaking, answering those that reproached him out of a heart that was resting in the grace and mercy of God because he understood that Christ alone was with him. Paul would say in Romans 7, 4, Wherefore, brethren, you are become, you've been delivered. You're dead to the law by the body of Christ. You've become dead to the law by the body of Christ so that you would be married or joined to another, even to him that was raised from the dead. For what end? So you could bring forth fruit unto God. What kind of fruit? The fruit of your lips. The fruit of our speech. The fruit of our answers. The fruit of our words. Of course, any fruit that God demands in the Bible. Where does that come from? His mercies. 
found, stored up in spiritual places, in the heavenly places, in Christ, and coming to us by faith. Like a, like a treasure chest of spiritual blessings stored up before the world began, coming to us by union of Christ, who received the bounty of His mercy and His blessings. How? According to your word, as you trust in the word, God is going to rescue you from yourself, not from your spouse. He's going to rescue you in such a way that you're learning how to answer Him that reproaches you like Jesus answered reproach, right? When He was reviled, He reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not. He didn't say, you just wait till I come back. I'm going to, I'm going to come in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who don't obey me. He never said that. Well, it was true. What did he do? He committed himself to him that judges righteously. We commit ourselves to God's word, his mercy. We turn again to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only place we can find mercy, salvation, strength, help, rescue, deliverance. Not from you, but from me. So that I can grow in answering those that reproach me in a way that magnifies, honors, and advances the cause of God. Don't you want that? Every time I say something like that, I say, I want, I want that. I wish I could say I do that all the time, but you know I can't. So that's the first result of the Word of God when it brings mercies, plural. It brings salvation and it brings Deliverance from ourselves, so out of a heart that is united to Christ, we can begin to answer in a way that pleases God. Begin and, and continue in a process. Secondly, verse 43, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. Next, when... Mercies come by the Word of God. That's how they come. We're trusting in the Word. We're going to the Word. And then God's mercies begin to enter. Next, those mercies mean, I will hope in your judgments. And that's in verse 43. I will hope in your judgments. Hope is a confident expectation of a future good. It's a certainty. It's a reality. So the first request is, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, because I hope in your judgments. And when he's hoping in judgments through the word, he's hoping in the mercies of God, found in the judgments of the word of God, the result is he will keep the law continually. In other words, he'll stay on the pathway of holiness, because that's what hope does. Hope sustains us through the trials, through the difficulties, by giving us a focus on eternity that keeps our feet moving on the pathway of glory. Now, what does it mean then when the psalmist says, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth? Because I hope in your judgments. Well, the word take means to snatch or to pluck away. David used this word in... 1 Samuel 17, 35, when he told 
Saul about the time when a, a, a lion or a bear would come and take a lamb out of the flock. He would go after the lion, smote the lion, and delivered the lamb out of his mouth. The word delivered is the same word. Just pluck it right out of his mouth. Which means, obviously, the lamb was in the lion's mouth. So when David says, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, means, first of all, it's in his mouth. It's there because it's in his heart. He's trusting in the word. Like the, lion, the lamb was in the mouth of the lion, it was plucked out. You can't pluck something out that wasn't already there. But then he says, snatch it out, don't snatch it out utterly, which means a word of degree or extreme, fully, completely, or totally. Because I've hoped in your judgments. So David is looking back, or the psalmist is looking back at a time where his confidence and his hope was in God, and something was in his mouth, and he's asking that that something, the word of truth, not be taken out completely, which means there are seasons in his life when the word is there, but his mouth is shut. Right? If it's not utter, if it's not completely, then it's intermittently. And intermittently means coming and going in intervals. You ever experienced that? It was a time when you knew it was time to speak. Maybe to a church member. Maybe to an enemy. Maybe to a friend. And you knew the word was right there on your mouth, but it wouldn't come out. Your mouth was shut. You see, reproach can often close our mouths out of fear. And so the psalmist is saying, Lord, let your mercies come, your salvation, your deliverance, and your rescue, so that when I'm reproached, the word of truth is not utterly taken away, which means he struggles with times when it's taken away in, in times and seasons. That's the only way that would make sense. Now the basis of that is he's hoped in the Word. So when he's hoping in the mercy of God, when he has apprehensions of the mercy of God that produces a confident expectation, what happens? He speaks. And so looking back and saying, I've hoped in your judgments, is telling us he's saying, that's what I need so that the Word of truth in my mouth is not plucked away, but I actually speak it. I need hope. I need confidence in God's Word. Do you ever lack confidence in God's Word? Not because you think it's not true, but because sometimes the people you're talking to are big and large and massive in some way. Usually when we're confronted with shame or confronted with reproach and their, their view of us, their disapproval, their... Their mockery towards us, it shuts our mouths. We know it's a time we ought to speak. And so what, what you and I need, beloved, is hope, a confident expectation, so that in that expectation of future good that we're certain about, it frees us to speak to kings, if that would be the case, or just to people that we know, our friends, our relations, Enemies that need the gospel. I wish I could say I never had a time where my mouth was shut, but it has been. 
Fear has gripped me. Has fear ever gripped you? Well, Peter will help us with that. Peter was a man who was gripped with fear, uh, and his mouth was shut when he ought to have spoken on behalf of Christ. Uh, And so Peter will say in 1 Peter 3, he will speak of hope. The book of Peter is about hope, having confidence of God, and then an answer we can give when we have hope. So it would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, and about the 12th or 13th verse, Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? I mean, even today, if you do good things, I mean, some people are not going to hurt you for doing a good thing. But, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, because some people today are going to harm you for doing the right thing, happy are you. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer of the hope. All right? Now, this psalm is dealing with answers to those that reproach you. In 1 Peter 4, they're dealing with reproach. They're dealing with people evil speaking. In fact, when we finish out that verse, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, whereas they speak evil of you. That's reproachful. That's slanderous. That is painful. They may... Be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. All right? So Peter says, be ready always to give an answer. That means our mouths are ready to speak. To be ready means you're you're in a position to act or to speak in a situation. You're, You're on ready. You're fully prepared. Now there are two things that are necessary in this context that we need to be able to give an answer of hope so that the word of truth is not taken out of our mouth. I take that to mean when he's saying to God, don't let it happen. And so how would we not let that happen? Peter says, be prepared to give an answer. How are you going to be prepared? Well, one, if you don't have hope, you can't give an answer of hope. You must have hope to answer hope. So Peter says in Chapter 1, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are you expecting? What are you confidently expecting when Jesus reveals Himself? When grace comes? When the person of grace? When the person who is grace comes? To take you home. What are the saints focused on in heaven today? The word sober means a single-minded focus. It means to have your attention riveted on something. So what hope is riveted on is eternity. What are they talking about? They're not celebrating in heaven their houses, their cars, their jobs, how much money they have, retirement, vacation. Possessions, what they look like, what they wear. Nobody's talking about that. Nobody's celebrating that. They're all celebrating Christ. When you are confidently expecting what the future holds by hoping in what God is going to deliver to your soul when He comes back, it reshapes your values. We're no longer celebrating things made of clay born for one brief day. Nobody's 
celebrating clay anymore like we have the struggle to do. So when you have hope and you're celebrating what's coming, it then frees you, verse 13 and 14, to be obedient children. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lust when you were ignorant, but as He which called you is holy, be holy. What produces holiness long term? Hope. When you're hoping in what's to come, it transforms your values in such a way that you're no longer being shaped by former desires when all you celebrated was clay. That's all you ever celebrated. What you could own, what you could have, what you could experience, what you could eat, what you could see, what you could do, where you could go. That was all we celebrated in our former lust. Our hope was in this world. We hoped for the next thing, the next event, the next job, the next promotion, the next car. That's what we celebrated. Now, grace has come in the form of Jesus Christ. It should be transforming your values so that you're celebrating what's coming. And when you do, you're not being shaped by former lust. Now you're being shaped by knowing Christ. And knowing Him produces what? Holiness. With this new value system, now you're ready to give an answer of hope because you have real hope. Without hope, your answer will be nothing. You know why? Because you're going to protect what you're hoping in. And if somebody threatens to take away your clay, you're not going to answer. If somebody threatens to take away your job for the word of truth on your mouth, you are not going to answer. Why? Your value system is distorted. Your hope is in this world. Your hope is in the job. Your hope is in the possession. And if they're going to take my possessions, if they're going to take my freedoms, I won't speak. But when you have hope in Christ, and you're confident that when He comes, when He comes, oh, what He's going to bring to your soul like you've never experienced before. When you're riveted with a single-minded focus on heaven and what's coming, that is, we keep turning to it again and again, out of that hope, you're ready to answer. It may mean some bad things. It may mean I lose my job. And this doesn't mean answer like, a, yeah, I'll, I'll answer those people. Well, that's probably not the Spirit. That's probably you. That's just pride. Notice what Peter says, in meekness and fear. If you have a brash, bold kind of an answer with no gentleness, that's not the Spirit. That's just you. You're just confident in yourself. You say, well, I can talk to people. I can tell them I'm not afraid. That's just you, friend. That's not the Spirit. It's meekness, gentleness, and now you're ready to speak. The second thing you need to do is sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to answer. To sanctify means to acknowledge Him as venerable. Don't use that word anymore. If you look it up, that's what it says. What does that mean? A venerable person is someone that commands respect because of their dignity, their character, and their position. So in your hearts, you need a high view of God so that when you're approached, you're ready to give an answer. A high view of His dignity, His worth, His value. His character. He's holy. He's righteous. And His position. And what is His position? He is the sovereign of the universe. Where is that in the text? 
in about verse 16. But it's better if the will of God be so, if you suffer for well-doing and not evil-doing. If the will of God be so. If it be so what? That you suffer for well-doing. What will of God is that? It's not the will of command. It's the will of decree. Who decides if you suffer for well-doing? He does. Who is him that will harm you if you do that which is good? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake? Who decides that? God decides. He is decisive. He is sovereign. He has decreed whether your good deeds will escape suffering or will it will put you right in the midst of suffering. Because it's better if the will of God be so. If it's not so, when you do will, well, you won't suffer. But if it is so, because He's decisive, then you will suffer. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Have this hope in Christ that is ready to answer, and then you need hope in God's sovereignty. Because He's decreed all things whatsoever come to pass. Not in a way that He's the author of sin and everything He's decreed on behalf of His children is for their good. Trust Him. Trust His Word. Rest in His dignity, His authority, His position, and His character. Because He's good. He's kind. He's loving. He's merciful. And He's yours by divine grace. So, the psalmist says, Take not the word utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments, and that's what I need is hope in the mercy of God. Then the words will come more freely. And then the upshot is, I will stay on the pathway of obedience, and I will keep your law forever and ever. Why? Because hope produces obedience. Just like we saw in 1 Peter, just like it did for Jesus Christ, who had hope or joy set before him, he endured. He was looking toward eternity. And that sustained him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And it will sustain us too as we look to Christ. Number three, in verse 45. And I will walk at liberty, for I will... And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings, and will not be ashamed. Next, when the mercies of God come by the word, even salvation, which is rescuing, delivering, Grace and mercy, you'll walk at liberty. You'll be free. The word liberty means large, spacious, roomy. That sounds good, doesn't it? The opposite is small, restricted, cramped. Now notice where the psalmist freedom is. You wouldn't expect this. I will walk at liberty... For I seek your precepts. Now, precepts in general is the law, but precepts in particular, know what that is? A rule that regulates your behavior and your thoughts. That's not freedom. Who in the world thinks that's liberty? Christians, yeah, that's what it means to be a Christian. Just straight jacket, kill joy, Put the straitjacket on. You can't do what you want. You can't think what you want. Somebody else is telling you what to think. But what is true freedom? So, well, freedom is doing what you want to do. What does he want to do? Look at the text. If you don't have the text in front of you, look at it when you get home. 
bring your book to class. Open your iPhone. You don't know if I'm telling the truth. You don't even know if it's in the text. You haven't even looked at it. Look at the text. Keep me accountable. I will walk at liberty because I seek. Is that not freedom? Why is he seeking rules? Because he wants to. It gives him pleasure. He's free. The world's version of freedom is to do what you want. And they look pretty free to me. Don't they look free to you? You ever think that? Here I'm a wife and I'm, the Bible says I'm submit to my husband. and These other women aren't doing it. I'm, I'm just straight jacket. God's putting a straight jacket on me. I mean, children aren't doing anything their parents say. They're just doing whatever they want to do. Here, i got to do what my parents say. That's not the language of freedom, isn't it? You have to, or do you want to do what God says? The world defines freedom as doing whatever you want, doing whatever pleases you, and the, the devil's form of freedom, pseudo-freedom today, is according to your impulses, according to your desires, not according to God's commands, His Word, or even biology. Just whatever you want to be, say it, claim it, it's yours. And it looks pretty free. I mean, they look free to me. Why are they not free? Peter tells us, while they promise you liberty, they themselves are the servants of perishing or corruption. The devil promises you freedom, but he himself is a slave of corruption. To be a slave of corruption is to be a slave of lust. You see, true freedom is not just doing what you want to do. True freedom is doing what you want to do. And what you do, bringing you pleasure and satisfying you. Lust will never do it. They are not free. They will never be free. And their freedom will, will bring them temporal ruin. Can you not see it in our society? How it's ruining people. And what are they doing? Well, they're doing what they want. And it will bring them eternal ruin. Because what a man is overcome with, he's brought into bondage. Peter, on the other hand, says in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, according as his divine power has given us all things for life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises that by the, these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption, same word, in the world through lust. How do we escape the bondage of lust that is destroying people and taking them to hell? By the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel word or the mercies of God. You will never be more free than when something outside of you commands you and something inside of you wants to do it. So the psalmist is free. By the mercies of God, because he seeks, he wants to do what God says. Do you want to do what God says? Have you ever wanted to do what God says? Then you are a slave of lust, and it's going to bring you temporal and eternal ruin. Turn to Christ today. Amen. Look at Him and be saved, all the ends of the earth, God would say in the book of Isaiah. Look at Him in the Word and experience the freedom of seeking God and His commandments. And you will find in God, both now and forever, He will deliver on what you seek. You will be truly free, as Jesus said. You will know the truth, and the truth will really, truly set you free. Because He is the Son of the living 
God. And when He makes you free, He frees us to love God, to experience His love, and to experience the pleasure in the love of God that then works itself out in what? Precepts and commandments and keeping the Word of God. I will walk at liberty. I will speak thy testimonies before kings and not be ashamed. Again, the psalmist is dealing with shame. We don't know if he thought he might be speaking before kings soon, if he had, or he's just saying, if I ever speak before a king, then I will not be ashamed. How? When the mercies of God come, when His rescuing, helping, delivering, mercy and grace comes, then powerful, majestic, authoritative, ruling kings, I won't be ashamed. Shame, again, is that powerful feeling of pain that we have at the consciousness of someone who has authority or power here, and we're afraid of that authority or power, or someone uh, that sees us in a light that makes us feel foolish and rejected and unapproved. You know, Timothy dealt with that. He was struggling with fear and shame and the way Paul helped him. Uh, Paul now, remember, Paul spoke before Felix and Agrippa and Caesar, kings, and he wasn't ashamed. I want to be like that, don't you? I, I don't think I'll ever speak before a king. I don't know a king or even a president. But if, if I had to do it, what, what's it going to take? Lord, I need mercy. See, if you could do this alone, you don't need a gospel, you don't need a Savior, you don't need Jesus. What's he saying? Lord, bring salvation to me. Bring mercy to me. I have trouble speaking to people on my level. I have trouble speaking to people, period. When it's the threat of reproach. So Paul said, Timothy, God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, that's the gospel, or of me, his prisoner. Be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. What's, what's Timothy dealing with? He's afraid, he's timid, he's feeling shame. He lacks confidence. He feels his inadequacies. Now the world's going to say, look, you can do this, believe in yourself, have confidence, do it. Paul says, no, that's not going to work. This is how Paul gives Timothy confidence. It's kind of surprising. The power of God, which is the power of love, which is the power of a sober mind, which means dispassionate, controlling strong emotions like fear, he repeats the power of God and says, this is what it is who has saved you and called you to an holy calling, not according to your works, but according to His own purpose and grace, given you in Christ Jesus before the world began. But is now made manifest by our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Timothy, you're, you're dealing with a lack of confidence. You're looking at yourself and you see your inadequacy. So I want you to do is stop looking at yourself and start looking at God's purpose and grace. He's going to give him a strong stability and foundation by saying something happened before the world began. It was not according to your works. It was not according to your faith. It was not according to your choice. It was not according to your will. You didn't even exist. And when I did create you, you were dead in sin. It is the purpose and grace of God before the world ever began. 
What is that purpose and grace? God determined, God selected you, God chose you, God determined that all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus would be yours. Stored up in eternity because He chose you for that end. Predestinated you to be brought into the family and experience the loving mercies of God, His kindness. Timothy, be confident in the purpose and grace of God. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your works. Yes, you're inadequate, but God's love is not based on your inadequacies. It's not based on you being adequate. It's not based on anything about you. It's His own purpose and grace. It's the good pleasure of His will. And it's independent of everything and everybody. Be confident in that. Well, how did it come to me? Who saved us and called us. All those spiritual blessings stored up in Christ because you were put in Christ before the foundation of the world by the choice of God. Now they're going to come flowing to you when you are called effectually. Not until then. Stored up. Going to happen. Certain. Salvation's not potentiality. It's certain. And it's going to flow out of union with Christ. He saved you. He effectually called you. Regenerated you. Called you by the gospel. And now they start to flow. You're in Christ. You are in Christ in the purpose and grace of God, but now you're experientially in Him because you've been called by the gospel. Now what? It's going to continue those spiritual blessings into holy living. He called you to holiness, Timothy. Here's the power that you need. It's God's love. It's His purpose. It's His grace. It's His salvation. It's calling. It's His power. To make you holy and to keep you. How long? Life and immortality, all the way to immortality, Timothy. You are secure. You are safe. You can be stable in the power, in the love of God, which then will produce love toward others. You'll be able to speak, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. You'll be able to preach the word, you'll be able to minister the word to the false teachers. And all those that are, that are contrary to God's Word, you'll be able to convince the gainsayers because you have a stability, a confidence in the purpose, the grace, the salvation, the calling, the holiness, and the immortality that Jesus bought for you and that is sure and steadfast. Now, does that give you a little bit of confidence? That's what it's designed to do. You start looking to yourself your inadequacies, which are real, and your confidence begins to fade, and our mouths begin to shut, and we become ashamed of something we shouldn't be ashamed of. Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Oh, yes, I have. And my mouth was shut. It's a terrible experience, isn't it? What's going to help Timothy? It's God's love. It's the power of His love. It's unfailing. It's unceasing. It's covenant keeping. It's not based on your failure. It's not based on when you don't fail. It's based on Him. That'll make you solid. That'll give you courage and strength. And you'll be able to speak before kings. I serve a king that's greater than all the kings of the earth. And He loved me and gave Himself for me. He will sustain me to the end. And then finally, I will lift up my hands to His commandments. Verse 47, I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. Thy hands also will I lift, them, uh, lift up even to thy commandments which I have loved and I will meditate in thy statutes. Lift up the hands, palms turned out. 
Now, some people lift up their hands in worship, and that's fine and good, and singing, lift up hands. I guess we're lifting up hands to God, but that's not what he says. Sometimes we might lift up our hands, but then when the commandments come, we put down our hands. Notice what he's lifting his hands up to. Commandments. Now, lift up my hands to God. Don't tell me about commandments. Then you're not lifting them up to God. That's just, you're just enjoying something. I don't know what it is. He lifts up his hands to the commandments, to the orders, to what God demands of him. And he lifts them up with delight and love and joy. And he meditates on the commandments. When a child lifts up, the command, uh, lifts up their hands to a parent, and of course when you lift them up to the commands of God, who you lift them up to? God. Because we love God and we keep His commandments, Jesus said. When a child lifts up their hands toward the parent, what are they communicating? What are they expressing? First, need. I, I just need you to hold me, Dad or Mom. You know, as a parent, you kind of like it. As a grandparent, you love it. You know? Come here. Let me hold you. I keep working out so I can keep holding them. Right? I need you. It expresses delight. I delight when you hold me. And I just rest in your strong arms. You know? What a, what a moment it must be when that child gets older and says, I didn't know Dad was not this strong. He's not, is he? It expresses need. It expresses delight. It expresses... Love. I love you, mom and dad. See, we're holding up our hands to God in His mercy. We need you, Lord. We, if any of this is to ever be true in my life, I just lift up my hands to your commandments. I'm lifting them up to you. Like a child is told, pick up the toys. Doesn't like that. Doesn't want to do that. Pick up the toys. And what happens when the dad gets on his knees? Or the granddad gently gets on his knees with some help, thinking, i got to get up again. And he starts picking up the toys with the child. There's a delight that comes on that child's face. What they didn't want to do now, it's like, oh, dad's helping me. They start throwing the toys, singing the song, right? Now, the lesson here is not that you have to pick up the toys every time your child is commanded to pick up the toys. Here's the lesson, beloved. You will never, ever do what God commands you without His help and without His mercy. If you do, you didn't obey Him. And so we're lifting up our hands, asking God for His help, for His rescue, for His salvation, for His mercy. And God delights to get on His knees, so to speak, get right beside you. And say, I'm going to carry you. I'm going to, I'm going to be with you. So I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not, I'm not asking you to pick up one toy without me. And so, that's why he says, I delight in your commandments. I've loved your commandments. I've delighted and loved in your commandments. And I meditate on your commandments. Because when we do that, we meditate in love and delight. We're lifting up our hands to God. And we're going to lift up our hands to His commandments. That doesn't mean they're easy commandments. That doesn't mean that it's not a struggle. It just means the God of mercy, of loving kindness, when His salvation comes, we ask Him for His deliverance and help. He comes and He gives us delight and love. Now, why is it 
maybe you ask, why is there so little delight for God's commands? Why do I experience so little love? Maybe because you do so little meditation in the Word. Now listen. Let thy mercy come, even thy salvation, according to His Word. You're not in the Word? Guess what? Salvation is not coming for you. No help, no deliverance, no mercy. Why? Because God has bound Himself to the Word. And if you're going to trust in the Word, you've got to go to the Word and think about the Word. And then you'll love and delight in the Word and you'll lift up your hands. Rather than, I don't want any commands. See? May we all include in our prayer list, Lord, let your mercies come, let your salvation come, even according to thy word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, sufficiency of it. We confess that we have at times closed our mouths. We struggle with fears, anxieties, and with our inadequacies. And Lord, even wanting to be approved and liked of men, it's, it's part of our old nature. Deliver us. May your mercies come. May your rescuing grace come to us every day as we cry out for it. May you give us an answer for those that reproach us. An answer in the gospel. An answer of uh, love and prayer. Of words that build up and not tear down. Of words that may be used for conversion. Give us an answer, Lord. Give us the help we need, Lord, to walk in freedom, and to know what true freedom is, is not to throw off all commandments, but to find that in Christ, our hope, our strength, that you will provide for the soul. There'll be nothing lacking to our soul so that we can walk in commandments and that we would seek them. Bless us to seek them and to love them and delight in them. And Lord, give us the hope we need so that the word would freely flow. We would be ready to give an answer. Not because our answer is going to make us right with you, not because our answer would justify us, but because the blood of Christ has justified us and that you come in those moments. We rest in your sovereignty, rest in your help and your mercy. We can find the grace to answer and to do and to be what you call us to be. Lord, we're desperate for you. Increase our desperation, increase our brokenness before you. And may we experience the glory of your power and your strength and your gospel and take away from us the spirit of fear that you have not given us. Give us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind in the grace and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make it true, Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.